you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. We've been, we've been making our way through this gospel uh, now since April, and we are, we are completing chapter 4. That gives you a little idea about the pace that we're looking at here. Uh, we took a big chunk last week, and this week we're going to dial it back just a little bit here. We've been following John through this journey and being really introduced to, to Jesus, both as, uh, both as we've talked about with our kids, the Redeemer as fully God and, and fully man. We're seeing him here with his feet on the ground, really, really dealing with the same realities. I mean, the same struggles, the same the same world that you and I deal with every day. That's, that's where we find him. And so we're just going to jump in here this morning. Uh, so stand with me now, if you will. Stand with me and let's tune our hearts to hear from the Lord right now. Like, like let's come to him as a people with expectations that he's about to speak, that he's about to share with us. Let's expect to hear from him. This is John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word to us. I thank you that you speak, and I pray that you would forgive me for not having an expectant heart. I pray that you would forgive my my willingness to just go through each day. Uh, to just take one step after another without really seeking your will for that step. And so I pray that you would come now, that you would meet us where we are, that you would come and speak so that our deaf ears can hear, that you would come and show yourself so that our blind eyes might see, and that you would awaken our souls today that we might know you, that we might believe in you. And I pray that you, would, you wouldn't let my weakness and my, my failings and my stammering tongue stand in the way of what you want to do this morning. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to tell you something that you already know. 
So I'm not sure that's a great way to start, but that's how we're going to do it this morning. I want to tell you something that you already know, but something that I am convinced that we either all forget or that we just choose to ignore altogether. This is, a, this is sort of a weird passage. I told the guys who got here earlier this morning, this is the third sermon that I've prepared this week for this passage. Uh, the first one got totally scrapped. The second one I, I kept and will maybe do something with later. And this is now the third take on this. And it's because I found myself ignoring the obvious reality that I think this passage demands us to deal with. I could spend... I could spend a lot of time telling you about the historical realities of, of this passage. <clears throat> I could tell you about this official from, from Capernaum and how he probably was a, was a servant of Herod Antipas and that he, he enjoyed a life of privilege. I could, I could tell you that. Um, I could tell you that he was most likely a Gentile, that he was a pagan, uh, that he was there to serve as an agent of the occupying Roman Empire. And we could spend a ton of time talking about all the nuances of what that means. I could tell you how far Cana is from Sukkar and, and, and how long it would have taken for Jesus to get there. I could tell you um, how, how when he left the Samaritan village, how, how he was now getting back on his mission, trying to get to Galilee. We could spend the next two days straight and, and I promise you there are enough commentaries that we could just read on verse 44 alone, trying to figure out exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us about prophets, about honor, and about hometowns, but we're not going to do that. Um, we could, but we're not going to do that, although I do find all those things interesting. Um, what we're going to do today is we're just going to put ourselves into the shoes of this man, or maybe the, I guess the sandals, right, of this man And we're going to do everything we can to remember something that every single one of us has in common. And what I want you to do now, this is different. I want you to just take a second and I want you to look around. I want you to just take a second and look around. Don't look at the walls. Our walls are terribly boring. Okay, we are working on that. But but don't look at the walls. I want you to look at each other. I want you to look at each other's faces. It's okay. All right. I know this is a Presbyterian church and we don't move. Well, I want you to look around just a little bit. Now, look, now don't stare because they'll think, you're, they'll think there's something wrong with them. They'll think something's wrong with you. Either way, it could go bad, right? But just look at one another. Take a, take a second. Look around and make sure you see somebody. Make eye contact with them. Give them a little nod. You can smile. It's okay. This is the Lord's day, and we are happy to be here, all right? Now, now look back, all right? Don't take it too far over here. Don't take it too far. All right, now what I want to tell you is that every single person in this room, every single one of them, the best looking ones, the ones who, who, who look like, man, everything is just perfect in the world. I want, I want you to hear me. Every single person in here, and it's not just limited to this room. I mean, we know that, right? We know that this is a microcosm of all of humanity sitting in here right now. That every single person in here, every single one, came in here this morning struggling with something. Every single one of you, I know that. I did. I came in here this morning struggling in different areas. Every single person came in here with struggles. I know you all look good. You're an attractive group of people, okay? You, you look nice as a well put together, all right? I know that when you look at other people, you don't, you don't see that pain. You don't see sorrow, I know that when you see other people around you, 
You don't, you don't see fear and doubt. Like you don't see the pervasive and persistent self-consciousness that is at times crippling in their life. I know that you don't see their past. You don't see the past that causes them, that causes their hearts to feel shame, that causes them to feel embarrassment. I know you don't see that. You don't see the present struggles or the fears that hinder their view of what's to come in the future. I know that. But what I want you to know is that every single person in here is struggling because this world is broken. It's just that simple. I'm not saying that makes it comfortable, but it does make it simple that this world is broken. And that and the darkness, we talk about that. John talks about light and dark a lot, and we've talked about that as we've talked about the true light coming into the world, that darkness is an equal opportunity invader. And so nobody is off limits to darkness at any point. I know you have a story, but I also know that every single person in this room has a story and our lives are being lived in this world and since this world is full of darkness since this world is full of pain and full of doubt uh, full of suffering and full of sorrow i want you to know that when jesus came into this world where we find him in this passage when he took on flesh and dwelt among us this world is exactly where he came And we see it in this passage. Jesus has had a brief stopover in Samaria, right? uh, We saw that last week, uh, right right in the middle of his journey back to Galilee. Jesus takes basically a pit stop uh, for just a moment to try and get a drink. He was tired. We were told he was weary from his journey. He he, he was experiencing those very things that you and I experience. And so he takes this stop beside a well in this small town in Samaria, And there he met a woman who was also thirsty. She had come to the well, a woman who needed something though far greater than just the water that would come out of that well. She was thirsty and desperate for what Jesus called living water. She was drinking from all sorts of other wells, man. She was was digging deep into all sorts of other areas in her life, trying to find relief, trying to find satisfaction. But, But the men in her life, if you recall that passage at all, the men in her life were not able to satisfy her. The false religion of her people was leaving her wanting more, and Jesus offered her something more. He offered her himself. And now we find that he has completed his journey. He has left that woman. He has left that town and he is back in Galilee. He's actually back in Cana. He's back where he had made the water wine. He's back in his own territory. He's back where he grew up. Remember, while Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, he was raised in Nazareth in Galilee, right? He is a Galilean by by his upbringing. He's back in his own hometown. He's in that place where according to verse 44, he has no honor. And what we know is that upon his arrival, word quickly began to spread that he was back in town. The Galileans had welcomed him. That's what it says. They had, they'd all probably heard of how he'd turned the water into wine. We know the whole town wasn't at that, at that wedding, but word had spread. That, that's not a typical wedding party, okay? That's not what happens when you go. They would have no more gone to a wedding expecting to see a miracle than we would today. I know when we read the Bible, sometimes we think, man, these things happened all the time. They must have been so used to stuff like that, like people just coming back from the dead left and right. When that happened, they were shocked. 
Like there was never a first century Jew or Gentile who went to a funeral expecting to see a guy get up and walk out. That, that wasn't what they were used to. And they didn't go to weddings expecting to see a miracle either. And so word would have spread pretty quickly. And so he shows back up in the area. They are glad to see him. And I would argue they're glad to see him because they are ready for the show to start again. Let's see what he's got this time, right? The circus is back. Let's see what they've got. But one of them, this official, he needs something else. And it's through his eyes that we are being asked to see Jesus in this passage. You see, this man has gotten the call that no parent ever wants to get. He's been given news that has shaken him to his core. We don't know how long this road has been for him so far. We're not given the full details in the background, but, but we can relate to him. We can relate to him because if we're honest, we know that we are never more, you and I are never more than just a phone call away from the walls of our world crashing in around us. We are never more than just a moment, just an instant from everything about the order of our reality that we know it right now, and and it can be shifted into chaos and disorder. You know that, right? That this world moves so quickly, we are never more than just a phone call away from everything we know changing. We see it with the man in this passage. You see, it's reasonable to believe that this man had a good life. It's, it's, it's reasonable to believe that. He's part of the Roman aristocracy. I mean, he's, he's big time. Another translation for official says nobleman. That means that he is, he is part of society. He's one of those accomplished people. Remember, Nicodemus was part of the religious establishment. He had power in the, in the Jewish community. That's where Nicodemus had some power. This man is part of the political establishment, all right? So that means that, that he would have had access to the best to the best resources available. All right, he was connected to all the other power players in the community. And you've heard that before. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And what we know about this man is he would have known everybody he needed to know. People returned his, I know this sounds crazy, people actually returned his calls. We don't do that very well these days, right? We don't leave messages either. We just text and hope. But that's, that's kind of, it's a little bit different world back then. When he, when he called somebody and didn't get them, they knew I better get back in touch with this guy, okay? He mattered. The moment that he got the call that his son was sick, just the very moment that he got that phone call that his son was sick, he had access to the best doctors, to the best medicine, whatever the newest and best options for recovery were, he had those at his disposal, And so it's reasonable for us to assume that at this point in this man's story, he has exhausted all of those options. He's been to every doctor. He's gotten the second opinion. He's gotten the third opinion. He's been looking everywhere for the person who would have the answer. He's tried the trial experiments. He's been to Johns Hopkins already, and they couldn't tell him how to fix this. He has used every option on the table They've tried it all. Can you imagine being that father? Your child is dying. You've tried everything. There is no hope. And that's where we find him in verse 47. Look at that. 
When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Stop there. Listen, the clock is ticking, and he knows it. He can see it in his son's face. The color has gone. He doesn't look healthy. He knows that this son is about to die. And so at, his, at the end of his rope, he is now going to Jesus. It's a move not of faith. This is not a move of faith at this point. This is a move of desperation. He's willing to try anything. And so what we see is that he has, he has heard the rumors of Jesus. I want you to think about that for just a, a minute. The rumors of Jesus. He has heard of this man who can do things that nobody else can do. And there's just something about him. The turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana was not a party trick. It wasn't a gimmick. The evangelist in 2.11 says of that event that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and we're told that he manifested his glory. Manifested glory is visible glory. Isaiah 53.2 tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so when Jesus walked in a room, he did not naturally garner attention. That's what that means. That if he walked in here right now, we wouldn't be like, hey man, that's this guy. That we would be like, I hope he finds a seat and minds his business. Sits down, doesn't create a, doesn't create any, like, please don't be a hand raiser, man. We can't handle hand raisers in the PCA, right? That is too much. If he's a collapse, we're going to all be in trouble, right? And this is, if he walked in, we would just see a normal guy. That's who Jesus was. No, no form about him. He didn't walk into a room and everybody go, man, I got to make sure I get near him. There was nothing about him outwardly that would make us be drawn to him. It was, it was what he did that manifested his glory. It was his actions. His signs were visible expressions of something greater. That's why John calls them signs. It's because they point to something else, to something greater. This man has heard of that. This official has heard of that. He's heard the rumors of Jesus. And so in desperation, at this point where he has nowhere left to turn, at the point where hopelessness has become his friend, right? Some of you know that. At the point where he has nowhere left to go, where his aching soul has become his new normal. He makes this trip to Cana to ask this Jesus to heal his son. That word for asked in 47 really is more like begged. There's an implied persistence in it. It's that he continually, that he chased Jesus around asking him, begging him, heal my son. He has no other option on the table. This is his last chance. I wonder if you can relate to this man at this point. Like maybe you have experienced something like this in your life. That point of desperation. Maybe you are experiencing something like this in your life right now. Like maybe you've gotten the call. I don't know every detail about every single person in here's life. And honestly, I don't think you want me to know that. I, 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 but, but I do know that every single one of you came in here with some sort of struggle. Some fight that you honestly feel powerless to win. I know that. Maybe it's maybe it's your health, you know? Maybe it's maybe that's the fight that God has allowed to occur in your life right now. Maybe you just cannot 
get over something. Maybe it's just a a health issue that you can't explain. Maybe it's the wounds of your past. I don't know. Maybe it's something from your story that still hangs over you like a dark cloud and you cannot get out from underneath it. Maybe it's just prevailing uncertainty about the future. I mean, we got a teenager. We're scared to death every day of what that means because we like her a whole lot, right? Maybe it's simply that the winds of change are blowing in your life right now and you just flat out are not ready to sail the ship. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I do know that every single one of us has felt this simple and incredibly powerful feeling, this thing that we call helplessness. We see Jesus question this man's motives, uh, not just of this man, but of all the people there. That's when he, when he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's plural both times. Unless you all see them, you will all not believe. That's the idea. He's got a crowd here. This man comes to him. He's saying, unless you all see something, you're not going to believe. And so that's definitely a rebuke, okay? It's a rebuke and it's a challenge. You see, one of the failings that I need to confess is that in my moments of darkness and my moments of doubt and my moments of shame, my moments of desperation, I have to learn to admit that I can't see everything. Like, like I am limited not only in my vision, but I'm limited in my understanding of the things that I actually do see. It was desperation that drove this man to seek a solution to his greatest perceived need. It was desperation that caused him to listen to the rumors of Jesus. Can you imagine someone coming to you and saying, you know, I've seen a guy. I'm just saying, I was at a wedding. I know your son's sick. A few weeks back, I was at a wedding and I saw something I cannot explain. And maybe that guy, maybe that guy could heal your son. How desperate would you have to be to walk the 18-ish miles from Capernaum to Cana to go and try that one? I mean, would you walk from here to Newberry if, if somebody just said, I saw a guy. It was at a wedding. There was water. Then there wasn't. We don't know what happened, but maybe it wasn't faith that drove this man. It was the rumors of Jesus And he had to go out and seek him. Desperation drove him. I don't want to ever hyper-spiritualize this man, okay? The only reason he made the trip from, from Capernaum to Cana, the only reason was to save the life of his son. That's it. That's the only reason. Even his cries in verse 49, did you see that? They make it clear that he had one purpose. Jesus rebukes him. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He just says, sir, sir, come down before my child dies. Like He doesn't deny what Jesus said. He is purely there for the sign. Just do this wonder. Will you just heal my son? Will you just come with me and heal my son? Like If you dare to visualize this scene playing out, if you, will just, if you could... And I hope you will go back and reread this passage and try and visualize this as much as you can in your mind. It will break you. I mean, this is a father who has reached the end of the road of hope and he is begging for help, desperately 
begging for help. It's, it's, many, many times this week, I've written the words, how far would you go to save the life of your child? That's where this man is. That's what brought him to Jesus. That's how he was introduced to Jesus. And that's what happens. You see, the rumors of Jesus will lead to an introduction to Jesus. The truth is that the official did not know who Jesus was. All he had was an idea. He had a thought. Jesus was just a rumor, just an abstract uh, concept to him, an unverified. That's what a rumor is. It's something that hasn't been verified. It's just being spoken. We don't know where it's sourced from. We don't know whether it's true. At this point, Jesus is a rumor and he's coming to him. He was nothing more than a, nothing more than a philosophical idea. Jesus was a great possibility at this point. And the truth is, that is all Jesus was to all of the Galileans. That's why they welcomed him. That's why he, and that's why he took that moment to rebuke them. But the introduction continues. It doesn't stop there. And what this man found in Jesus is what we call, well, it's what we call grace. Look back at, look back at 49 again. The official said to him, Sir, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So what we see there is Jesus granted like half of the request. You know, there were two requests. It was, come and heal my son. That that was the request. Jesus says, go, your son will live. He didn't go with him, but he did heal his son. And then verse 51 tells us that as he was going down, His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Can you imagine that moment? I'm serious. Can you imagine that moment? We talk a lot about how seeing is believing, right? We, We think of Thomas in the upper room after the resurrection who said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas needed some evidence. He wouldn't believe without seeing. For the man in chapter four, though, for our official here, believing became seeing. With each step towards his home, hope began to rush back into his heart. He began to imagine for maybe the first time what it would be like for his son to live. Can you, can you see him? Like, can you feel that? He, he began to visualize, for the first time, began to visualize playing with his son out in the yard. Like, if this me, I'm finally, I'm, I'm able, my son's out of the bed. I'm able to throw a Frisbee with him out in the yard. Uh, he's running down the sideline, cheering his son on. This is what's coming into his mind at this point. He's, now there's opportunity. There's a chance that his son is going to live. He begins to visualize his son growing up. And like he sees his son getting married to a beautiful girl. And, and they have lots of babies, of course, because if you're going to be a grandparent, you want lots of grandkids, right? He's going to have all the babies. There's going to be babies everywhere. And this official, he's going to be the best granddad. I mean, you see what happens when you can imagine when hope enters into your mind. Now, all of a sudden, his son, who's going to be dead, is, is making kids. And this guy's going, I'm going to be a granddaddy. And I'm going to play with those grandkids. And I'm going to spoil them. And I'm going to send them back to this guy. And I'm going to make him sorry that he ever had those kids because I'm going to love them so much that he'll have to live up to that. And then he's going to tell the story, right? Because if you're a granddad, you get to tell the story whenever you want to. Nobody tells granddaddy to stop talking, right? 
That's a rule. He's going to say, hey, kids, have I told you the one about how your, how your daddy was sick and I went and I found this guy, Jesus, and they're going to be like, great, granted, you've told us this a thousand times. You're like, yeah, yeah, but this is the good part, right? And then Jesus said, and they're like, they just let him finish because he's granddad and he tells this story. And they would listen to it over and over again because it's a good story. It's a good story. But at this point, it's not a complete story. It's not a complete story. It wouldn't be a completely happy ending because we know better. We know that not only did this son need to be healed physically, but he needs to be healed spiritually. He needs to have life. He needs to have life. That's why I love verse 53 so much. At 53, we see the true mission of Jesus in focus. In 53, we move from the rumors of Jesus and the introduction to Jesus to faith in Jesus. The servants tell this nobleman the time of day that the fever broke. And then 53 says that the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. He believed and all his household. It's obviously a profound miracle. I mean, there's no denying that. Can you imagine the rest of his journey home? I mean, I, if I was that father, I'd be stopping by the grocery store. I mean, we are fixing my boy's favorite meal tonight. We are going to celebrate big, right? When I walk in the door, I'm going to scoop that child up, whether he is four or 14, and he is going to get hugged on, and he is going to get kissed on. And, I, and if you know me, you know I'm a bit of a crier, right? So that's definitely going to happen. There will be tears flowing in joy in that room. And this is like receiving your child back from the dead. I want to tell you a quick story. When I was about six years old, my dad bought a pontoon boat. It was an old pontoon boat. Um, And I was so excited. I mean, I just, I, I remember seeing it. It was the most awful orange color you can imagine. Um, it had, there were no seats on it at all. Zero. There was a steering wheel, a motor, and a roof. That was it. And it floated. So in our world, that's a boat, right? And so that's, we, we, we got onto the dock and jumped on it and we go for our first ride. And as we're coming back in the cove, I'm sitting on the front of the boat, got my feet dangling underneath me, and I've, I've got a paddle in my hands because why not, right? I'm, in my mind, I'm a pirate now on this ship, and it's a mighty vessel coming back into the, into the, to the land, and I'm sitting there, and I put that paddle into the water, and the momentum of the water flips me over and right into the water in front of the pontoon boat, which passes over the top of my head. Now, if you know anything about that, you know that is a really bad position to be in. And so I'm scrambling under the water, trying to grab whatever I can. There's like some little bolt. I remember like getting my finger kind of stuck in. And, and I still can visualize this moment being under the boat and, and thinking, well, this is going to end badly. And I hear some commotion up above, you know, on the deck. And, and all of a sudden I hear the motor shut off and my dad say, let go. And I floated out the back of the boat beside the motor, and he cranked it up and came back and picked me up, right? Because I'm alive, obviously. Um, I don't remember a whole lot about that day after that moment. I mean, not really anything other... I'm told I shook the rest of the night. 
Um, that, that, which seems understandable. Um, just shaking sort of violently all the rest of the night um, as I sat on my dad's lap. I don't, rem- I don't remember that, so I can't really verify if that's a rumor at this point. Um, what I can tell you is I remember my dad's body shaking violently as I sat there. I remember hearing his heartbeat. I remember hearing like the, the feeling of, of fear but also joy. Isn't that a weird combination of things? That's what that father would have felt in that moment. He's feeling that because he has received his son back from the dead. That reminds me of a quote from Ravi Zacharias. He said, Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. See, we might reasonably add that Jesus Christ did not come to make sick people healthy. (laughs) Now, he did that. He did that. We see it here. But isn't it interesting that he was able to accomplish that task without ever seeing that boy? He could heal him from a distance. He didn't see him. He didn't touch him. He didn't say anything to him. He just declared him healed. Go. Your son will live. And it was so. Jesus did not have to go to the official's house to save the son from that sickness. But he did have to come here to save us from our sins. And that's the difference. You see, he couldn't just write a check to pay for our debt. He couldn't just ignore the guilt and sin that we own or pretend that it wasn't real. That wouldn't have been true. That wouldn't have been just. No, you see, Jesus came to earth knowing every single one of your faults. Every single one of them. He knew every single one of your failings. He knows the struggles of your heart right now. We need to remember that Jesus didn't come to seek and to save the righteous. He came to seek and to save the lost and to give his righteousness to them. That's grace. The man didn't know. When that man left Capernaum, he didn't know for sure if he would find Jesus. He knew he needed help. He knew that he was powerless to save the one he loved. But the rumors of Jesus led to this introduction to Jesus, which ultimately led to faith in Jesus. I want to ask you, where are you putting your faith today? What are you still hanging on to this morning? Like what in your story that you need desperately to let go of are you still hanging on to? Will you give it to him? Like will you stop letting your past failings, your present fears, and your future doubts hinder you? Jesus wants you to give him those things. He wants you to trust him with them. He knows it already. You're not going to surprise him. I'm going to tell him something. I'm like, oh man, I, wish I really wish I'd have known that before I went to the cross. I would have, I'd have really rethought that. He knows it already. He knew it before he ever paid for it. And he says to you this morning, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what he tells us. I imagine the official from Capernaum slept well that night. <laughs> you imagine that? I imagine that he prayed with his son, that he kissed him on the head, 
probably laid down beside his bed and waited till he fell asleep. And then the next thing he knows, it's morning and he's waking up. I imagine that he looked forward to tomorrow. Not because today was over, not just because they survived today, which is how many of us seem to deal with life. If I can just make it through this day. Now, I don't think he was... I don't think he was looking forward to tomorrow just because today was over, but I think it's because, because in Christ, by faith, for the first time, and as long as he could remember, he had hope for tomorrow. He looked at tomorrow as possibility. He looked at tomorrow with dreams of what Jesus might do. I hope we're a dreaming people. I hope we're a forward-looking people. And I hope we continue to tell people these rumors of Jesus because they might just get introduced to him and they might just come to faith in him. That's a good dream. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to confess and I, I want to give just a moment here uh, because my guess is that there are people in this room right now who have things that they have not asked you to carry for them, who they still think that they have to hold on to, that it is their identity, that it makes up who they are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn those things over to you. You own them already. We're carrying your property. You have paid for those sins. You have paid for those failings. You have paid for the pain and the sorrow and the hurt. And you have looked at us and said, I love you. Father, would you just break us of the need to try and carry the things that aren't ours anymore. Just take them from us. Just take them from us. And help us to walk as a new creation. The old having passed away, the new having come. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.